Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. I'm here with Jose Ortega. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here with you. Yeah, I'm glad that we were finally able to meet. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What kind of hobbies do you have? How did you get into um, studying marine mammals? Yeah, well, uh, I'm from the northwestern region of Mexico, uh, from the beautiful state of Sonora. Uh, My city that is Hermosillo is like a one hour drive from the Sea of Cortez, most commonly known as the Gulf of California. And since childhood, uh, I was really into biological sciences in the sense that I love like uh, opening the biology books and looking at the images, at the photographs. And I remember opening a plant physiology book. And I have this book because my dad is a a researcher in agricultural sciences. Mm -hmm. And look at what I know now, it's called the Krebs cycle and being like, whoa, what is this? (laughs) Since then, Basically, little by little, I was I found this deep interest in nature. And when I grew up, I went to study a Bachelor of Science, Biological Sciences at, at Universidad de Sonora here in my city. And during my courses, I was um, introduced to different branches. And between them was marine biology. And to be honest, I didn't follow it right away because I was also into biotechnology and molecular, molecular biology of plants. But for my master's degree, for my master's degree, I decided to focus on what I really love and basically the ocean. And I was re- interested in marine mammals, particular, uh, particularly pinnipeds, uh, a group that includes seals, sea lions, and walruses. But I didn't know who was working with them in my state. 
And then, then I had the opportunity to talk with Professor uh, Juan Pablo Gallo Reynoso from the Centro Investigación en Alimentación y Desarrollo, which basically translates to Research, Research Center for Food and Development. And I know the Institute name can misguide you, but there's a coordination uh, focused on environmental sciences. And he opened, in, he opened to me the doors to his lab and where their main focus uh, is aquatic mammals terrestrial mammals, but they work with uh, bird species too. And one of the pinniped species they work with is a California sea lion, which is considered the only resident species, pinniped species in the Gulf of California. And I was welcome to work with them for my master's degree. And here I am, actually. <laughs> Very cool. So we're here to discuss your recent publication, Detection of Microplastic Particles in Scat from Different Colonies of Sal California Sea Lions in the Gulf of California. So tell us, obviously, I mean, you told us a little bit about being open up to the lab, but how did you come to pick this specific research question? Well, um, right before I entered my master's program, I was contacted by a friend of mine that if I, if I was able to be a translator for a journalist who didn't speak Spanish for a TEDx event, do you, do you know that TED Talks event? This, like, yes. uh, mm -hmm. And he was going to do a TED Talk about plastic pollution in mm -hmm. a documentary he directed called A Plastic Ocean. I don't know if you've seen that documentary. I have not seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, it's fantastic. I really recommend to all of you. Uh, and watching that documentary uh, and talking with him and I learned about the emerging pollutants called microplastics that basically are tiny plastic particles are less than five millimeters in size and I was shocked by this and I wanted to learn more about the topic and in, in the meantime I was applying to enter to my master's science program uh, and I needed a topic for my thesis in talking with, with a colleague of mine uh, he shared with me a research paper titled investigating microplastic traffic transfer in top predators, uh, mm -hmm. where basically the research group worked with analyzing subsamples of scats from captive gray seals and whole digestive tracts of wild caught uh, mackerel, mackerels they were fed up on. And indeed, they found microplastics in both predator and prey. And actually the polymer that was like found in the particles analyzed, the most common was ethylene propylene. So here, basically, this represents what is called uh, indirect traffic transfer, which is basically when a predator preys on contaminated prey. And from there, it clicked. And what if we investigate if the California sea lions are exposed to this pollutant too? And from there, we started working. Very cool. So how did you conduct this study? Uh, well, Back in 2018, I was invited as a field biologist to monitor uh, California sea lion rookeries inside the Gulf of California, basically during their breeding season. And, and there I was able, then able to sample scats for my research thesis. We sampled five breeding rookeries. I, I don't know, have you been to the Gulf of California? To hear- I have, yes, I've been once. Wow, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've been to several islands, but one the islands are uh, the rookeries uh, where where sea lions breathe. Uh, we basically like there's a lot like there's like thirteen of them, but we we sample five 
Brian Rookeries. One is called San Jorge Island, like near the upper Gulf of California. Uh, also, we sample San Pedro Martir Island, San Esteban Island, and San Pedro Nolasco Island. That are basically on the central Gulf of California. And also from Farallon to San Ignacio Island in the southern Gulf of California. And well, also in, at the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic, uh, during the resting season, we sampled the coast of Cabo Aro near Guayma City and here in Sonora. And we had the samples, but an important question was raised. Who was going to be able to help us with analyzing the scat samples to see if they have plastic particles? Then a professor who also was like part of, of this research work told me about a researcher called Nancy Ramirez Alvarez uh, de Baja, uh, from who was reportedly working with microplastics at Universidad Autónoma Baja California on Ensenada, Baja California. Mm -hmm. And I contacted her and she kindly agreed to be my co-advisor. And from there, I started working on the processing of the samples uh, to next take them for visual observation, classification and quantification on, on a sterile microscope on Ensenada. Until this point, we have the visualization of the particles, but basically we know the morphology, the color, the sizes, but we weren't sure if we, what we were seeing was of plastic origin or not. So we collaborated with Lorena Rios Mendoza, a professor from the University of Wisconsin on Superior, and where we sent her our samples for chemical characterization and to identify if the polymers um, of the particles were of natural or synthetic origin. So basically that's the basic, uh, the basis of, of this study. Okay, very cool. So what did you guys end up finding? So, mm, well, well, when the results came in, they show us uh, what we feared, that mm -hmm. the California sea lion was ingesting microplastics, but in minor quantity uh, compared to natural polymers. Uh, the more common synthetic polymers we found are polyethylene, uh, poly, polyethylene terephthalate, like the PET plastics, and polypropylene. Uh, we can say that PET makes for good water bottles, but also polyester in our synthetic clothing in, in, is also made of PET plastic, that, made, that PET polymer. And that's the thing, more, basically more than 91% of all of the particles we found in the California sea lion's cats were little fibers. So we can, relate, we, we can relate textile fibers being one of the major issues concerning microplastic pollution, but not the other one, obviously. And there are a lot of sources for microplastic pollution in the ocean. Uh, here we are contributing to microplastic research in the Gulf of California, a region where little to none has been investigated about this emerging pollutant. All right. I was gonna ask like, what does this mean for their health? But it sounds like maybe you don't know. Um, and do we know how concentrated these pollutants are in the environment? Actually, we have like issues like knowing like uh, there's a lot of, of of studies regarding how how much plastic is in the ocean, but we are just touching the surface on this topic. Um, the thing is, these type of studies are valuable because we have to know the expo microplastic exposure in our ocean. Uh, in our case, analyzing microplastic exposure to the California sea lion is important, yes, 
considering it's a sentinel species. Mm -hmm. uh, this means that the California sea lion are also top marine predators. It had been previously proposed basically to uh, as suitable tools to estimate environmental changes in the Gulf of California and the oceans in general. So basically understanding the interaction of this pinniped with the emerging pollen will provide baseline information of the Gulf of California and Mexico's oceans. Uh, but yes, uh, actually there's a lot to do to know how concentration, how, how concentrate, concentrates this pollen in, in our oceans in general. For sure. Um, maybe for our listeners who are not so familiar, how do these microplastics get into the ocean? Yeah, there's different types of, of pathways for microplastics to, to reach the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, one of the major ones are basically uh, the textile fibers, as I said, in our, in our clothes. Well, right now we have a, uh, well, several ways we, how microplastics can reach the ocean. And basically like terrestrial systems, the environment, like atmospheric system. But one of the major like pathways of microplastics to reach the oceans is through the drainage system. But also we have to consider like atmospheric microplastics. And this depends a lot on the density of, of the particles. Sometimes depend depends a lot on the density of the polymer of the plastical, the, of the particles, I'm sorry, that basically some particles are more prone to, to like float and become these called what we call atmospheric microplastics. And maybe they are traveling through the air and reach the oceans besides that once we are like uh, to the drainage system. And sometimes we don't have the, like the filters for, for our water treatment, like the ones who are like collecting like these particles so they can easily go into the oceans. So those are two of the main ways we can find microplastics in the ocean. For sure. So I know this is a preliminary study, but do you know the impact that this could have on the health of the California sea lion? Mm, right now, there's no exact answer to that question. Uh, you think that for these like big vertebrate animals that regularly eat like semi-digestible things like squid pigs and fish athletes, you assume that these invisible plastics might not have any impact on them. But what we don't know at this point is whether tinier plastic particles known as nanoplastics, and that basically the exact definition for nanoplastic is still under debate, but some mm -hmm. studies regard its size like less than one, one micrometer yeah. can pass through the intestinal wall and enter the bloodstream, potentially reaching vital organs such as the liver, the lymphatic system, which are responsible for the body's immune system. Um, it should also be added that in the study of mice and a study of mice, researchers found that nanoplastics can affect the gut microbiome and can cause damage uh, to the gut barrier function. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, uh, at this point, we simply don't have the technology that is good enough to detect nanoplastics at their size. So we're still some time away from thoroughly, thoroughly investigating them in the wildlife. Ah, so also, 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 I think we didn't mention is that there is a chemical contaminants that are present on and in plastics that can be released into biological tissue when ingested. Uh, this relationship includes whether microplastics acts as a vector to expose uh, animals to higher concentrations of these chemicals. 
in addition to their normal uh, intake from their diet and seawater. It's really hard to think to fathom. It's not as simple as X, mm-hmm. number of microplastics in the gut equals to the amount of, of toxins in the tissues. Many variables uh, are, can affect this relationship, including the type of polymer and the age of plastics being ingested. Mm-hmm. It's, you can see that it's a complicated, complicated issue, but we hope we can reach out to understand these issues in the near future. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I feel like, you know, with these issues, obviously we know that there are issues, but we don't have all the answers quite yet as far as how they're going to impact wildlife in the short and long term. Sure. Um, so obviously, you know, we want to reduce our microplastics. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners for ways that they can reduce microplastics? And I totally understand that that's a little out of your wheelhouse, but I figure it's worth asking. Yes, of course. Indeed, preventing uh, further microplastics from impacting wildlife requires like both individual and societal efforts. (laughs) Indeed, uh, preventing further microplastics from impacting wildlife uh, requires both individual and societal efforts. Like uh, at individual level, we have the most obvious one of them that is reduce plastic use. Mm-hmm. Use reusable bags, reusable water bottles and containers instead of single-use plastic. Uh, know how to mm, proper disposal of plastics, I'm sorry, uh, mm-hmm. like recycle plastic properly or dispose of them in a way that they don't want um, end up in the environment. Mm-hmm. Avoid using, I don't know, in, in the US, in Canada, the, you, you, a lot of companies already ban uh, microbits. I don't know if you heard of this. Like... Um, like a lot of, of, of personal care products contain um, microbes, tiny plastic. plastic. Yes, tiny plastic bits. And basically, like, for example, facial scrubs, toothpaste, uh, body wash can contain these microbits, these tiny plastic bits, and they can easily end in, in the ocean. Uh, a thing I also recommend is to support, support ocean friendly brands, like shoes products from companies that can be environmental responsible policies and they have these policies and practices responsible for environment Mm -hmm. Uh, at the societal level uh i can recommend for well there has to be implementation of policies and regulation like governments can implement policies and regulation to restrict um the production and use single use plastics and microbits uh, we have to educate the public, increase, increase awareness of the harm caused by microplastics and promote environmental friendly habits. We have to also promote the most important one for me to promote, promote research and development, encourage the development of new technologies and products that are environmentally friendly and do not produce microplastics. Also, governments have to, uh, organizations, also individual levels, we have to have this cleanup efforts and uh, beach cleanup. Yeah, at societal, societal level, we can work uh, actually like, first of all, one of the most important things is that we have to implement policies and regulations. Uh, governments can implement policies and regulations to restrict the production and use of single use plastics and microbes. Also, we have to educate the public Increase, increase awareness of the harm caused by microplastics and promote environmental friendly habits. 
we also, and one of the most important ones for me is we have to promote research and development. Uh, we have to encourage the development of new technologies and products that are environmental friendly and do not produce microplastics. Uh, it's easier said than done, but this is, is one of, of the, um, we have to work to this goal. Uh, mm -hmm. Governments, organiza organizations and individuals, we have to organize ourselves and participate in beach cleanups and other efforts to remove plastics from the environment. Uh, I don't know, I I'm sorry, I have a phrase in Spanish, but I, I don't know how to translate it. Uh, mm, I'm sorry for that. Uh, it's, I have like, it, it's just out of like behind the scenes, BTS. <laughs> we have uh, like, we have a phrase. I always say this to people like, like we have, uh, if we enter our apartment and we see a flood and we, and we and the thing is that we open the, the sink, we, we left the, the sink open. What's the first thing you're going to do? Like you're going to grab a mop and you're going to like, like try to clean up everything up or you're going to close the sink. So mm -hmm. this is the thing I always say because this is <laughs> uh, basically, uh, we have to work through the origins of, of of this pollution into our oceans. So mm -hmm. overall, preventing further microplastics from impacting wildlife requires a, like a concerted effort from individuals, governments, and organizations to basically reduce plastic use, properly dispose of plastics, promote environmental responsible practices. And I know this, uh, this requisite change is colossal, but not impossible. Definitely. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. We have to start somewhere and it can definitely seem overwhelming when it's a big mess. But yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. Yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yes, of course. Um, in the sense, I want to like focus in, in, in uh, the importance of sea lions, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, sea lions are, fascina are fascinating uh, animals that have evolved to survive in a range of aquatic environments. And actually they can offer several lessons that we humans can learn from, including, for example, adaptability. Finnipeds have adapted to life uh, in both water and land, which has allowed them to thrive in a variety of environments. And we can learn from their ability to adapt to different environments and situations. Also, pinnipeds use a range of vocalizations and body language to communicate with one another. So basically communication is key to a lot of issues in our life. And mm -hmm. also um, they are resilient. Pinnipeds can, can face a range of challenges in their lives from predation to changing environmental conditions. And despite these challenges, they have developed a range of adaptive strategies to survive and thrive. So we can learn from their resilience and apply it to our own lives to overcome adversity and challenges. And also uh, by studying and learning from these animals, we can gain a greater, greater appreciation for the importance of environmental conservation efforts to protect these ecosystems and the animals that rely on them. So overall, pinnipeds offer many valuable lessons that humans can learn from, including adaptability, communication, resilience, environmental, uh, our environmental awareness. 
to to take care take care of nature. So I hope we we can learn more from these individuals are fantastic to study. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a great answer. And I always ask people what we can learn from the animals, but you just answered that question. So that's oh. amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah that was awesome. perfect. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you everybody for listening and tune in next week for another episode. Bye.